Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7 as these gentlemen are kind enough to give you a handout. Isaiah chapter 7 as we continue our march through the book of Isaiah. On the front of your worship guide, we usually put a, uh, a main verse uh, the guide that's going to guide our worship. Uh, pretty much all the songs will be geared around that. Uh, and and it comes from the text being preached. Uh, I would imagine that Isaiah 7.14, the Lord will, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and he shall give birth, and you shall, birth, shall call his name Emmanuel. I would imagine that's a pretty... Uh, uh, familiar verse to many of us. So the challenge before us in the small amount of time we have together this morning is understanding where does that verse come from. So one of the misnomers I had about prophecy uh, was that the Old Testament had like a table that listed all the prophecies and you just kind of went through them and then you turn to the New Testament and they were fulfilled. Uh, but that's not how the, New, the Old Testament works. The, the prophecies are laid out in narrative. They're, lay, they're laid out in stories. And importantly, those stories take place in the midst of lives. They represent real people and real kingdoms. So God literally used, Jeremiah puts it this way, He built up and He tore down kingdoms in order to bring about the things He wanted to bring about. So part of the challenge before us this morning is understanding that where that text came from and, uh, and what it means to us. So in Isaiah chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 1. The uh, text, uh, the title of the sermon this morning is a Christian response to trials. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to, war, to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of resin, in Syria, and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord your God, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria, it's Damascus. And the head of Damascus, it's resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim, 
is Samaria. And the head of Samaria, it's the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I, I will not ask. I, I will not put the Lord to test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land of whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring you will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not been seen since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Let's pray. Father, the words we sang together, the words penned by Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they can kill, but Your Word abides forever. Those are so easy to sing, and they are so hard to live. God, I'm praying that You'd be kind enough to us through Your Word that we would get a faith like Luther, that we could let goods and kindred go in this mortal life also because we believe that the Word of God does abide forever. I pray that there would be a rich vision of who Jesus Christ is. And by Your grace, it only happened by Your grace, we would cherish and treasure Him for all that He is. And so as we face trials, when we face trials, we would have vision to not be shaken. We would have vision to walk through them with faith and with courage, not with fear. As we look at the story this morning, give us attention and give us help. And would we leave with a vision of Jesus that's strong enough to endure every trial You give us. We ask these things to You, our provident, perfect, planning, plotting Father. We ask them through the name of Jesus Christ who is everything to us. And we pray now that Your very Spirit who delivered Your Word to us would now, Father, enlighten our hearts. Amen. So this morning we're going to be discussing a conflict in the regions of Syria, Israel, Palestine, and Iraq. So it would make sense if I told you to turn to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal for a news report about that, right? But instead, I'm going to have you turn to a news report that was written 2,700 years ago 
and the prophet Isaiah. A bit of background is in order. So God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would give him a nation and he would give that nation a land. And God brought this to fulfillment through the ministries of Moses and Joshua. That is, he brought the nation into the land. In Deuteronomy, well before the people ever had their land, God explained to them what would happen if they disobeyed God once they had the land. They would lose everything they were given. I want you to hear this. And keep in mind, this was written 700 years prior to Isaiah and the account that we're at today. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, that's Moses, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And he gives a whole list. I'm going to skip to verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that He commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, listen to this, whom the Lord sent against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And He, that's God, will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you don't understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. So God made clear that before the people ever had a land, before they ever had a king, if they disobeyed God, He would bring another nation to judge them, and He would allow them to be conquered. So as you track forward from Moses, and you go forward about another 500 years, you're going to land about the time of David and his son Solomon. Right after Solomon. Right after Solomon dies, the single nation of Israel divides into two nations. There's a northern nation, which becomes, and it's the bigger one, it becomes known as Israel, and the southern nation below it becomes known as Judah. And that happens somewhere around 932 B.C. For the next 200 years, Judah continues to disobey God. And Israel continues to really, really disobey God. About the same time that those two nations split, there was an, an empire building up in the north. This was the Assyrian Empire, will be one of the, or one of the world's greatest empires as time goes on. They begin to spread, they begin to take land, and they begin to move westward. I think I've actually got a map. Um, there you go. And that should be the same map as on your thing. And I have with me a laser. And a laser is awesome. Alright. Um, so, so here is Assyria up there. Down here you've got Judah. 
And here you have um, uh, Israel. One of the things I love about this map is it gives you modern day uh, on top of it. Um, so this area here where Syria was is pretty much modern day Iraq, and Syria is still in Syria. Um, and its capital is still Damascus. So the, the countries, what, what began to happen is Israel and Syria, those two countries made a pact together. Their leaders, Rezin and Pekah, they, not Pekah de Gaia, that's, that's different. Um, that's a nasty thing that should be further crushed. But anyway, um, this, these two nations began a, 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 a treaty together, an alliance. Uh, and they said, if Assyria comes after us, we're, we are going uh, to join up. Well, Judah, down there at the bottom, led by Ahaz, uh, they just, he decided not to do that. Um, and as a result, uh, you can imagine he, he, well, sorry, he took his alliance straight to Assyria. Well, you can imagine that didn't go so well uh, with, uh, with, um, with Syria and with Israel. And so that's the, that's the time that we pick up now together. Verse 1, look at it, and hopefully this is going to make some sense. In the days of Ahaz, king of Judah, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, so... Then Ahaz, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David, now house of David is Judah, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim is another word for Israel. That's what sometimes can make that tough. That's why on the map I gave you the names, the different names. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So Judah is in a bad spot. They're in imminent danger. It's easy to read a story like this and forget these are real people who really lived. So this, these, this is families with dads who were wondering if any day the troops were coming down their street and would slaughter them. These were mothers who were concerned that they would lose their lives and really concerned about the lives of their kids. These were grandparents who were concerned that they would be carted off to leave the only home they had ever known. These were kids who watched day in and day out and saw the terror on their parents' faces and on the faces of those that they had usually trusted for safety. The end of verse 2 says it all. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook his trees before the wind. But doesn't this make us ask the question, how could God let this happen to His own children? Let me make the question even more difficult. Why did God cause this to happen to His own children? I put it like that because as we saw in the text of Deuteronomy, it's quite clear who the primary actor would be when the day that the foreign armies came. You heard the text. Therefore you shall serve your enemies 
whom the Lord will send against you. Who's the primary actor? The Lord. And He will put a yoke on your neck until He has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you. Brother and sisters, let me ask you this question. Does the God you believe in bring trials to His children? Or does He just run ahead of them, preventing every trial? Let the text be clear that God, for various reasons, He will bring trials to His children, even major trials. These trials of various shapes and sizes, they make us question both the control and the care of God. And I have no doubt, in this room of full of God's children, there are folks enduring trials. Some are asking, how long will God allow this feeling of depression and isolation to last? Some are wondering, when will God bring an end to my chronic pain? Will God ever send a sufficient suitor my way or am I just going to be single forever? Will God ever change the spouse He's given me to someone I actually want to be with? Will God ever bring my wayward children back home and home to God? When will God bring me a new job or cause my current job or ministry to be successful? These trials, they're not a foreign army marching down our streets. But I'm going to tell you, they can cause us to shake. Shake like the trees of the forest shake. For a child of God to ask if He will, will bring trials, God will bring trials His way, that's like asking a person on their way to a swim party, asking if they're going to get wet. God will bring trials to His children. Sometimes, as is the case here, it's because of a way to discipline and chasten them. Sometimes it's to test us. It is always to grow us. The question is, how? How will we respond when the trials come? God's children respond with either faith or fear. With faith or fear. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not. Fear. God sends Isaiah out to confront Ahaz. If you read the account of Ahaz, especially as recorded there in 2 Chronicles 28 and 2 Kings 16, you're going to find out Ahaz is a conflicted, twisted guy. He makes multiple offerings to false gods. He builds for his people false gods. He takes his own children and has them burned as sacrifices to false gods. So it's apparent 
that you're not, we are not going to be learning together from Ahaz how we should respond to a crisis. But we can learn a lot from Ahaz on how not to respond to a crisis. Notice Isaiah doesn't find King Ahaz in the throne room uh, when, when he confronts him. No, he finds him desperate and scared. He's out checking the city's water supply. Look at the command that God gives to Ahaz. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Now this does not mean stay calm and look out for your enemy, but don't fear. It would actually be better translated something like, be careful to do nothing. There's a whole other sermon on that, but that's one of the most pious, hardest requests that God gives His children is to be careful to do nothing. He's telling Ahaz to not try and put out the fire of Israel in Syria because they're just smoke. Listen to how he says it, verse 4. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria, the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up to Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Here God describes the situation from the viewpoint of a man's perspective. From a man's eye view, the threat is real and the threat is present. But see, God doesn't see things the same way we do. Verses 7 through 9, He switches. And He gives us the divine perspective. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. It's not going to happen. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria, you can see God just laughing. The head of Syria, it's Damascus. And the head of Damascus, it's resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that's Israel, they'll be shattered from being a people, completely shattered. And the head of Ephraim, it's Samaria. And the head of Samaria, he won't even call Pekah by his name. He's the son of Remaliah. If you will not, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. The divine view sounds a whole lot different, doesn't it? God says it's just Syria, just little old Damascus. It's just Ephraim. It's just Remaliah's boy. From God's perspective, the threat is hardly a threat. God knew that both Israel and Syria were operating on the very last breaths of their existence. They were very close and would soon be ruined. They were not a threat to shake Israel, I mean Judah. So why is Ahaz shaken like a leaf? <laughs> why is Ahaz outplaying national plumber? Why can he not heed God's command to be careful to do nothing? Because he is looking at it only through human experience. He's unable to borrow the eyes of faith because he is blinded by present circumstances. He was so blinded. He was so scared. 
He couldn't even look elsewhere. And God wants to make that apparent. Look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol. So you can go all the way to hell. Or let it go as high as heaven. Anywhere in between. Ask whatever you want. But Ahaz said, Oh, I, I will not ask. I, wouldn't, I would not put the Lord to test. Verse 13. Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little of you to weary men to weary God also? You're just a frustrating guy. That's another way for God to put it to him. You frustrate your people and you frustrate me. And God asks Ahaz to request a sign. Why? Well, the reason is because God wants Ahaz to realize that he did not lack a revelation from God. He wants to make that apparent. We may actually look at this and think that Ahaz was a bit pious because he was unwilling to test God. That's not the case. Look at God's response in verse 13. God does not appreciate this game at all. It was purely Ahaz's unwillingness to let go of his control, to see through the angle of faith. It was his unwillingness to let go of the small angled man's lens. When trials come our way, everything comes down to vision. When trials come our way, everything comes down to vision. Will we dare, by God's grace, to look through the lens of faith and trust the providence of God? Or will we keep our eyes horizontal, gazing at what lies right within our field of vision, owning the crisis for ourselves? One is a response of fear. The other is a response of faith. So we see that God brings trials to His children. We see that His children can respond with fear or faith. But it is not just any faith. It is a faith in something. It is a faith in someone in particular. The Christian response is faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. So follow this with me. This, this gets a little bit tricky. But a little bit tricky, there are volumes and volumes written on these three verses. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Now, if your Bible doesn't have the word virgin there, it has something else. There are a few times I'll tell you your translation is so bad to get another Bible, but that's an example of one. So if, and there are those out there. So if yours says something besides virgin there, come talk to me. I'll be happy to tell you why that's a horrible translation, and I'll be happy to help you get a good one. Um, but anyway, moving forward. Um, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Ahaz refuses a sign because he doesn't want to look through the telescope of God's providence. He just wants the binoculars of his own viewpoint. God responds so ironically. 
God responds by showing him a picture. You might call it the Hubble telescope of divine providence. He drops down on, on, uh, on uh, Ahaz here one of the greatest prophecies in all of human history. You don't want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And there he gives him a picture of something 700 years in the future. One of the clearest promises of the Messiah there is. He explains the Messiah will miraculously be born to a virgin. And his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So one of the reasons that some translations don't want to put virgin there is because a virgin conceiving that doesn't happen very easily but if you could change the word and just call it young woman well now everything changes a bit get yourself a new translation verse 50 verse 15 references and goes so far as to say that the messiah will be born into poverty oh boy that's sweet a young boy born of a virgin called Emmanuel, born into poverty. Oh, verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Okay. Verse 16 says that before this boy is old enough to know good and evil, the immediate crisis before Ahaz will be over. Now wait, how can that be? How could Jesus, who was not born for another 700 years, be the answer to this? Because Syria was completely destroyed by Assyria within just a few years of this utterance, and Israel enjoyed the same fate about a decade later. So why does Isaiah speak of the coming Emmanuel as coming before this crisis was over? Hope you're following. This matters a lot. It matters a lot because I actually think it will represent one of the deepest struggles of our lives. Isaiah intentionally is mixing the distant, that is things promised in far off, with the near. That is things happening now. He's mixing it all the way throughout the passage. Let me give you some examples. Back at the beginning of the passage, when Isaiah goes out to meet Ahaz, remember he takes with him his son, you're like, okay, what is this, bring your son to work day? So he brings his son and says, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son. Well, the name Shear Jashub means a remnant will return. So you got the scene. Isaiah, playing plumber, is out there just scared to death that the, that the, uh, the kingdom of Judah will be destroyed forever. Right? Marches on out Isaiah, and he says, King, I'd like you to meet my son. A remnant will return. In other words, yeah, be scared now, but I'm looking into the distant. And guess what? It's not over. It will, a remnant will return. Another example. In verses 7 through 9, is Isaiah describes Pekah and Rezin. And he, he, he's making fun of them. He keeps saying, well, the, the head of of uh, resin is just Damascus. The head of Pekah is just Samaria. There's a point being made. Because in verse 13, when Isaiah scolds Ahaz, he refers to him as who? O you house of who? David. Well, recall, Ahaz is a descendant of David. 
And to David had been given the promise of the Messiah. What's the point? The point is the crisis, the near, these temporary kings of Israel and Syria, they were nothing within the long-stretching plan of God. A plan promised long before Ahaz was born and would be fulfilled long after he was dead. The distant past promises to Ahaz's forefathers should have been footing for faith in the near and present circumstances. So back to verse 16. The point being made is to demonstrate the brevity of Ahaz's present crisis in just a few years. The amount of time it takes for, for someone to be born and begin to learn right from wrong. I'm beginning to think that's about 40 years. But anyway, in just that short amount of time, this would be over. The point is a play on the near versus the distant. Ahaz can only see, only feel, only operate in the near. And that will cost him and his kingdom greatly. Why? Because in verse 17, he goes to Assyria. 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So God says the king of Assyria, he will not only fail to help you, but he will own you. Ahaz's desire to solve the present crisis only furthered it. But I think we can empathize with Ahaz. He's a king of a small nation. He has a king of two medium nations breathing down his back in an extra large kingdom heading his way any day. How can God fault him for seeking to make an alliance with the extra-large kingdom? How can God think that telling him stories about the Messiah to be born some 700 years is going to help now? Okay, that's great, but what about now? I think I can empathize because I deal with life in such a similar manner. I was thinking about this as as I was walking through what I thought the application was, and I could only sadly chuckle to myself, if I were walking through a trial or a crisis, and a dear brother or sister came up and said, you know, Tim, I don't know. Don't know how it's going to work out, but I want you to consider Jesus and all the promises of future grace. Preacher Tim wants to tell you, I would say, thank you so much. I just appreciate that. Right? Um, and uh, sadly, I probably would tell you that if I am honest and you're hearing real Tim's voice inside. I would probably say something like, well, thank you so much, O ye incarnate of Charles Spurgeon and John Bunyan. I'm not talking about where I'm spending the future. I'm talking about now. Right? I think somewhere in the Christian world, we decided that answering present problems with future promises is unhelpful. And that is incredibly unfortunate. Preachers are taught that they need to spend their time understanding the felt needs of their congregation. If you don't know what felt need, needs means, it's just a euphemism for problems or trials. 
I'm not saying that's unimportant, but I'm telling you the Bible spends most of its time encouraging us to a faith that is big enough to see our felt needs as temporary and the promises of God is massive and eternal. Let Isaiah 7 stand to correct us. The point of verse 16 is that Ahaz's present crisis, a crisis though it was, is a temporary crisis. If Ahaz will look to God's promise of future grace, future deliverance, future mercy, then he will have vision to handle the current crisis. God doesn't promise to rid him of the trial. Never do you hear that. God does promise to grant him vision to endure the trial. This is what makes it a Christian response. There are lots of religions and lots of worldviews that will counsel followers to get through trials with faith. It actually led the atheist thinker Karl Marx to write this, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed, that's a suffering creature. It's the opium of the people. In other words, religion, though it doesn't reveal truth, says Marx, it's a way to help you get through your problems. Christianity is not that. It actually doesn't seek to numb or simply solve our problems. Christianity teaches that our trials are a way to arrest us from our slumber, to lift our eyes from the present in order to lift our eyes to someone better, namely Jesus. We opened our service with Apostle Paul making the same argument in Romans 8. We read it together. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here we are in the present, looking back to the distant past when he gave us his son so that we can have hope for a distant future and that's supposed to inform our present. Isaiah is arguing to Ahaz that God can be trusted with the present because of his future promise of a king. This sort of logic is logic that provides solid footing for the Christian faith. It's what births us into Christianity. And it's what gets us through every trial. It will get us through the ultimate trial of death. Every one of us save the imminent return of Jesus, faces a certain massive trial. We all face death. We don't like to talk about it. Millennials, you all are a trip. You all do anything not to talk about it. But it's a reality. And the statistics, they are weighed against us. Death is a tragedy because it serves as a sure symptom of our biggest problem, sin. The Bible says the penalty of sin is what? Death. <laughs> Ironically, we spend most of our times at funerals talking about the goodness of the deceased. Meanwhile, his or her lifeless body bears the clearest sign that they have ever demonstrated of the inherent disease of sin. And somehow, I've attended multiple Christian funerals and the word sin has never even been mentioned. 
That seems as senseless as a patient wheezing and coughing to, to breathe and the doctor failing to mention lung. Get yourself a new doctor. So, what is the Christian response to death? And I use this as an example with that logic being if you can figure out how to deal with death, I think we got the rest of the trials figured out. How does a Christian respond to death? It's a full-throated acknowledgement that death is real because our sin is real. It's also full embrace that Isaiah 14 is real. 7.14 is real. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. Perhaps a good funeral, a Christian funeral might simply say, well, the fact that our brother has succumbed to death doesn't surprise us as he regularly confessed that he was a sinner. But praise be to our God, our brother's present near-term crisis is not the final word. Then the preacher flips to Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 38, and says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor no powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Faith in future grace is how we will one day confront death and it is our plan for how we will confront every trial. As we close, let's take one quick look at an example through what Ahaz's, one of Ahaz's descendants. Turn with me to Matthew 1. Or if you're following the handout, just look down. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and she shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so here we have a great, 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 great grandson of Ahaz. His name is Joseph. He already had a trial before him. He had a, fa a fiance who was pregnant, and he was not Papa. Now God comes to him. He doesn't come to make the trial easier. I would argue he just made the trial much more difficult because he asked Joseph to go ahead and marry Mary. And notice, none of God's reasons are seen in the present. None of them will affect Joseph's life tomorrow. All of his reasons are built on faith in the future grace of God. What would Ahaz have done? I am pretty sure 
he would have done away with Mary as quick as he could and moved on to the girl of his dreams because the only thing he could see is the near. Verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Friends, as we face trials, tough circumstances, sufferings, when things are not happening on the schedule that we want, may God give us vision for the long haul. May God be kind to give us faith instead of fear. And may He give us a God-sized faith that doesn't get us through, merely get us through the present trial, but a faith that lands us on Jesus Christ. A faith that lands us on our Redeemer and on our rock. Let me pray.